Welcome to episode number 81 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is Chris Baines of the YouTube channel Crispy Crisps. His recent documentary, The History of Ghosts and Goblins, full series retrospective, uh, caught our attention and, and uh, learned a lot about the series, and he's here today to talk to us about it. Crispy Crisps. Chris, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you for having me. How you guys doing? <laughs> good, good. Um, so, you know, just to start us off, uh, tell us about your work and, and your channel and, and what you do. Uh, so I, I just started this about a little over a year ago. Um, I'm very new to it, uh, but I've loved video games my entire life. I, I came out of the womb with an Atari 2600, and I've always just kind of loved like reading about them, like you know, like reading interviews in magazines, Nintendo Power, and all that stuff. Um, and one day, I just kind of had the idea that I wanted to just like I saw I've been watching a lot of documentaries over the last few years, like Gaming Historian um, and uh, Matt McMuscle, some stuff like that. And uh, I just thought it was fascinating. I kind of wanted to, you know, just give it a shot randomly. And I, I started a channel and my early stuff is incredibly cringy. Um, but I just I love researching this stuff. I love learning about it. And I love, uh, you know, teaching other people about it. So that's really it, honestly. Does anyone not have incredibly cringy early stuff? I mean, you, mine certainly You was. have to, I think. Yeah. I think that's like a requirement a for, yeah. I mean, <laughs> my first YouTube video is awful and I only and i i'm inspired by the gaming historian who you, you just mentioned because he doesn't delete his old videos and i was like okay well if he's not doing it then i won't delete my old videos either <laughs> anyways uh we're talking about ghosts and goblins today um so let's set the stage for that um first of all what is ghosts and goblins like how what is this game uh so it's obviously known probably best for its extreme and punishing difficulty. Uh, it's It was an arcade game that came out in 1985. Uh, and it really kind of, I mean, there'd already been difficult games before it, but it kind of set the standard, I think, at that point in time for that die, repeat, die, repeat, die, repeat kind of platformer um, that, you know, kind of inspired a lot of stuff after it, you know, Castlevania, Ninja Guide, and kind of like learning the patterns and like enemy placement and all that stuff. And, you know, just keep, getting sent back to checkpoints over and over again. And obviously, you know, that has kind of like expanded over the years into many other games like Dark Souls and, and whatnot. So it's just, it's a game that's known for being a lot of fun while also being extremely challenging. And I want to congratulate you on your restraint from not uh, including Dark Souls in the title of the video. <laughs> I've already gotten a few people. Whenever I, I, I said it in the tweet, unfortunately, because I'm, I'm a uh -huh. small, I'm a small channel, and you know you have to like push a little bit for clout. And I paid the price from a couple people sorry. that were very upset <laughs> that I made the comparison. So this is a pretty early game from Capcom, um, and it was designed by uh, Mr. Fujiwara. Uh, so tell us about him and and sort of the games that led up to this. Uh, so Tokuro Fujiwara was uh, he he was in college in 1982 and he was hired by Konami, not Capcom. Uh, right, uh, he was in design school, so I think it was I'm not sure if he was finishing up or if he was in the middle of college and he left. Uh, but he was hired on as a designer. He didn't go straight into games. Uh, he did a lot of uh, leaflets, like gaming leaflets, uh, the arcade 
uh, artwork and stuff like that. And then uh, he was put on his first project, which was Puyan, which is like a it's like a vertical, like kind of scrolling up and down shooter uh, where you play as a pig defending like her piglets against foxes that fly down on balloons. Um, and he kind of came in like halfway through the project, but he kind of came up with all the game mechanics and everything like that. Uh, and then he made Rock and Rope uh, with Konami again uh, in 1983. And he was with that project from start to finish. So he only made two projects with Konami. And then Capcom, uh, I don't know if it was like an invitation or if they just poached him or whatever, but they pulled him from Konami into Capcom, which was still very, very new. I don't even think they had made a game um, when they when they pulled him in in 1983. I, I don't then, think so, because he's credited on Volgus, Volgus. which is their first game. Their yeah. first game, yes, uh, which is his first game as well. Um, and then Yoshiki Okamoto, who's like, you know, big for 1942 and uh, Gunsmoke and a bunch of things like that, uh, came over with him, uh, which is kind of crazy because neither of them were in like they weren't friends. They didn't know each other, but just like they two different people from Capcom, like scouted them and pulled them like right around the same time. So they're often kind of like, you know, looked at as like, you know, rival not rivals, but like, you know, they, they kind of like are looked at as like kind of like the the foundation of Capcom, you know, like kind of who who built a lot of uh, the games that Capcom, you know, what gave them their legacy, I suppose. So, um, yeah, he comes over. Uh, he makes Volgus and uh, Okamoto makes Sun Sun, uh, which is their two earliest arcade games. I believe Volgus was first, as you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, both games do all right. And then uh, the next year he makes Pirate Ship Higamaru. Uh, which is kind of like a maze-like game where you're you're throwing uh, like barrels and things at pirates, and then Okamoto made their first like kind of bigger title, which was 1942, the the uh, vertical shmup. Uh, and then after that, in 1985, um, uh, Fujiwara started working on two different projects at the same time, like kind of parallel to each other. Uh, the first was uh, Senjo no Okami, or Commando, as we know over here, and then uh, the second was Ghosts and Goblins, and uh, Commando came out first. It was a huge success. It was uh, another really big title for Capcom. And then uh, Ghost and Goblins, or Makai Mura, as was known over there, came out uh, a couple uh, couple months after that. I believe in like July-ish of uh, 1985. So that's kind of him leading up into like how Ghost and Goblins came to be, I suppose. So what is the origin of Ghost and Goblins, of Makai Mura? I mean, what, it, it's a pretty big... Well, I guess his games have been kind of all over the place in, in terms of tone up until this point, but it is a pretty big shift from uh, Commando. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he wanted to do something different because Commando was obviously very like military focused and he wanted to do something that was kind of like very different uh, and, and cr- contrasting with that. So that's why he uh, he kind of went with the medieval aspect and it's like heavily influenced by like, you know, uh, like European folklore and stuff like from the Bible, like obviously Satan is a character, uh, Lucifer later on, like obviously like angels and fallen angels from the Bible. Uh, and they were like, you know, kind of developed in, as different types of games. Like he he was very, he just loved action games. Like that was the one thing he always wanted to make action games. That's like kind of the consistent thing with Fujiwara over the years is he's he just loves making like action titles. But um, he, he wanted to make something that was very different from uh, Commando. And he wanted to make something that was like, you know, uh, had to do with demons. That was like kind of like the the, the first like idea uh, that he came up with. And they didn't want to make it like too realistic. Like he was kind of worried about going too realistic with everything like that because he didn't want it to come off as like a cheesy like horror flick. Um, so they kind of like 
went with like a humor vibe. So they kind of like, it's like kind of like this weird mix of like horror and like kind of like lighthearted humor. And uh, they called it, the, the original title for the game was actually Makai, which um, means uh, demon world. So they kind of had that idea right from the start. And then they added Murda at the end to kind of give it more of like a lighthearted, it means village. Um, so it's demon world village in uh, English. That's the translation of Makai Murda. But Murda was added in at the, uh, at kind of like at the end of development to kind of convey the more lighthearted approach and also kind of give the, uh, the European like medieval motif feel a little bit. So th- this is a weird aside, but um, isn't, isn't Pirate Ship Higemaru, isn't the Japanese title Makai something as well? I believe so. I, you know, I can never, I'm not sure. I, I've seen it though. Yeah, it is in there somewhere. I think you're correct on that. I think you yeah, are and, correct. And that, that was his previous game, right? Like It like, was, yes. It's, it's his, the Makai series. And and, yep. and and in fact, uh, Pirate Ship Higemaru came out on the Famicom as well. But it was... It, it was Famicom, yeah. Yeah, but uh, there must be some kind of pun there with the series, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm not sure. He just maybe had a fascination with just like uh, demon world stuff, like like demons. <laughs> I don't know. He's Demon Island. Demon... Yeah. <laughs> for um, sure. So, okay. So for those who haven't played uh, Ghosts and Goblins, um, describe a typical game for us. Uh, so you play as Arthur... Uh, who is a steel-clad knight, and it is a side-scrolling game. It actually came out a few months before Super Mario Brothers uh, in Japan, so it is uh, a very early side-scroller. Uh, and you can run and jump. Uh, you can pick up weapons. Uh, there's the lance, uh, axe, daggers, and torch, uh, and pretty much just make your way through levels. It's it's pretty simplistic for the most part. I mean, for, for that point in time, it was groundbreaking, but you know, nowadays you look back at it, it's pretty simplistic game where you're just pretty much killing enemies with different weapons and uh, trying to make it to the end of the stage where you fight a boss. And uh, obviously the most notorious feature is you have to beat the game twice to get the true ending. Uh, Something that was most, I never got like confirmation in any of uh, the the research, but obviously it was made to bring in more money at the arcade. I think we can all agree that it was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a a scheme to, uh, to kind of, I don't want to say scheme, but a mechanic quote unquote, to uh to to get more uh quarters or, or yen coming out of the uh the machine honestly i agree with that but it also makes me wonder i mean other than just that it's tradition at this point but like by the time they were starting to tinker around with difficulty levels and um you know bringing it to home consoles and stuff it's like why did they keep that <laughs> <laughs> Well, they and they kind of moved away from it later on. Like if you look at uh, Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins, it's a totally different type of game where you have to collect a certain amount of uh, their rings that are kind of hidden throughout the level. So like I think Fujiwara was like trying to get away from that, but I also think fans were like, "No, this is how it's supposed to be." You know, you're supposed to go through the game twice. You know, like once you get like a mechanic that's just kind of like burned into the series, like after like the three mainline titles, it's just kind of there, and it's kind of hard, I think, for for him to get away with. And like with Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins, the crazy thing about that is even with that kind of like collectible like way of like, you know, confronting the final boss by finding all the items you needed to, uh, they released a revised version a year later that made it just like the old ones where you had to just go through the game simply twice. So even him trying to kind of move away from it, they a year later, they just kind of undid all of that and went back to the basics again. So, so you mentioned the game being pretty much contemporary with super mario brothers which is something i just had never considered you know i played them both but it's it's kind of interesting thinking of them uh being created in parallel 
uh, especially when you consider that both games have a protagonist that just has two states basically, right? Like, like super and regular, uh, yeah. where, where, where once you've been hit, you downgrade and then one more hit and you're done. And it's kind of an interesting, that's parallel. An interesting parallel. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So when, when you get hit, uh, in ghosts and goblins, uh, Arthur loses his armor and ends up in just his underwear, kind of like another, another part of them kind of like wanted it to be a little bit lighthearted and, uh, you know, uh, kind of silly at the same time. But yeah, I never really thought about that, uh, how they both kind of have that, that two hit aspect. Granted, but you start out with your armor in, in Ghosts and Goblins, and True. with Mario, you have to collect it. But still, it's the same kind of deal. Not that I'm thinking about I'm it. I'm just so. saying that Miyamoto ripped it off. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, he did. Jeez. <laughs> it, that, is, that is especially interesting, though, because I don't think of Mario as a punishing game, even though like your 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 chances are the exact same in terms sure. of like you know you only get to make one mistake, kind of, or only get to make yeah one mistake, and then your second mistake is your death. You did, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, Ghosts and Goblins is a much harder game, but I didn't even consider that those are technically the same number of mistakes allowed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. But uh, yeah, as you said, the enemies are uh, much, much more cruel uh, in Ghosts and Goblins. Um, and obviously, one of those like the most notorious enemies that lent to that difficulty is the uh, the Red Armor the, or the Red Demon. Uh, everyone knows him, but uh, he was actually created before anybody else in the game. So uh, they made him before Arthur, before any of the other enemies. He was the very first uh, creation of Ghosts and Goblins. And uh, he was actually based on one of the programmers, uh, Toshio Arima, who I believe came over with them from Konami. Like I, I couldn't find, exa- there's not much about Toshio Arima. I couldn't even figure out what kind of what happened to him. Um, I, I, he may be working for Xerox now as like a, a business guy. I'm not, I'm not sure, but uh, it was jokingly designed after him and named after him. So Reto Arima in uh, Japanese. Um, but he was just kind of like they, the staff, like kind of had a fondness for him and uh, kind of looked at him. They joked about him being the true protagonist of the game. And obviously that kind of, you know, turned into something else later down the road. Uh, one of the staff members you haven't mentioned yet is uh, the composer, uh, Ayako Mori. Uh, what else did she do? Uh, she, I believe, also did 1942. It, she would, she didn't do too much. She didn't hang around too much for uh, with Capcom. I was trying to figure out what happened to her. And the, the closest thing I could find was a, a DJ in Germany. Where it's a Japanese DJ, and I don't know if it's her. I was I dug forever <laughs> trying to figure this out, but it's like she moved, I think, to like Poland with her boyfriend, and then ended up in Germany as a DJ. And, and I, it, her name's Aika Mori, but I don't know. I've heard, I saw like rumors that it was like the same person, but I could never like substantiate it anywhere. So, well, women are notoriously difficult to research because they often change their names when they get married. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. she might not be going by the same name anymore too which is a um yeah it, it's very easy to lose track of where women in the video game world go. sure and there were, a lot of people weren't credited either that was the yeah. other thing yeah. it was like it's kind of hard to like pin who did what in some of these games well because if like... you credit them they get poached by capcom and leave your company exactly, so. exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's such a that song's so so iconic it's so good game. Like it's, I mean, there might be other songs in that game. I have no idea. There's, but there's the Ghosts and Goblins mm-hmm. song, and and like it has been stuck in my head this entire episode. Let's be clear. Same. Good. Um, Good. It's amazing. And uh, and you know, the composers of that era are fairly well documented. There were like 
I, th- I think like five women composing music at Capcom at that yeah, time, something yeah. like that. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of upset. Like, what else did she do? I want to know. Someone yeah, out there, figure this out. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to know. <laughs> I, I, if anyone can find out, like, please, please let me know. I would love to, to hear about it. So yeah, the the game came out come out comes out in uh, the arcade uh, domestically and also around the world, U.S. and Europe, and um, it's it's kind of in this time too where most arcade hits, and it was a hit, right? Yes, yeah, yeah it was very successful, incredibly uh, successful. Became uh, converted to you know every computer you know at the time, yes. usually usually yes. in the U.K. and 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 uh, this is of course no 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 exception. Neither is Commando. Sure, sure. Yeah, they got a ton of ports. Uh, I think the one most people know most is like the NES slash Famicom. Like that's like mm-hmm. the big one that, and I, I know I believe that sold over a million copies. It was a big, big hit for them, also um, in the uh, the home console market. So that was uh, a big, big success for them. But it was also obviously on Commodore sixty four. Uh, the ZX Spectrum, I, I pronounced it right this time. You I did. had a lot of people that were very upset <laughs> that I said that wrong. Um, and the this, this Commodore 16 as well, I missed that one. Uh, there's a Commodore 16 port that's on a cassette tape, uh, which is pretty pretty rough looking, but kind of interesting at the same time. Uh, the Amstrad CPC, the Atari ST, just there's a ton of different versions. Yeah, it got kind of ported everywhere uh, with varying degrees of, of quality, honestly. So. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated arcade game this i mean it's not that doesn't feel like one that ports well and i mean the the nes and famicom one is pretty faithful but it's it was i mean it was it's definitely faithful it's probably the most faithful but it's also a very rough port Mm -hmm. um and i believe it was rushed from what i could tell but it was my chronics i think that was my i think it was my chronics yes yes uh that did that that port job That, that was not a capcom a Capcom port, unfortunately, and you can absolutely tell. It could have been way worse, though. It could have been way worse, but like it, graphically, it, it probably kind of gets things the closest, at least at that point in time. And that's it was a gorgeous game for 1985. It was a very visually impressive game. Oh, in the arcade, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, you know, I, I guess I'd never really put much thought into this game's place in history uh, until I watched this video, to be honest, but like it being contemporary with super Mario, it's like, wait, these graphics are ahead of their time. Yeah. It's you know, like it's, uh, you know, not that the super Nintendo is like graphically superior to the arcade or whatever that, that the, at that time, but it's like, it, it looks like it, it almost like sets the tone for like what a 16 bit game looks like. Absolutely. That, yeah. yeah. It was, it was huge. And I think like Fujiwara at the same time, just, I don't ever hear anyone talk about him and he's like such a huge, I mean, like we can get into that later on, like what he kind of goes on to do, but he's like a huge, huge part of like a, like, you know, kind of making Capcom the company they were. I mean, I think they would have found success with just Okamoto, but like they had the double whammy with him and uh, Okamoto and it was just, you know, just hit after hit. And I guess he just has his, his hands in so many other different franchises. Um, one of the biggest being like he championed Resident Evil. Like he's yeah. responsible for Resident Evil being a thing like that, which is like, is it the biggest Capcom series or is it Monster? I think it's either that or Monster Hunter, but a massive series, you know, and he very rarely gets talked about, um, talked about with that whole, that whole thing. So when he made Sweet Home, which is sort of yes. where Resident Evil draws, um, draws some of its inspiration from. Exactly, exactly. Which is like loosely based off of the movie um, of the same title, but very different at the same time. Wait, did you watch the movie? 
I did not. I did not. I wanted to. I was. I. I, I kind of want to do a, a video on Sweet Home at some point, but I feel like it's kind of been done to death. But maybe someday. But I, I'm very interested in in uh, in covering that more because I I learned a little bit about it, but just you know, just kind of like little tidbits that kind of get me interested. So, so Fujiwara, um, he's still creating uh, arcade games at this point. Did he do anything between this and and its sequel? Uh, he makes. The Speed Rumbler, which is like an mm-hmm. overhead car combat game, uh, in Tiger Road, as well as the uh, the very uh, popular Bionic Commando, which is the arcade one, not the arcade the, the, one, the, which is yeah. not very popular, <laughs> not very popular. But it was it led to something being very popular, which is Bionic Commando and the NES, my favorite. Oh uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He game. did he did that Konami game that's very Bionic Commando like. Yes. Uh, the, oh wow. Okay. Wait, wow, no, wait, no, 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 no. So, wait, hang on a second. Now I'm, I'm lost. The, the, what, what, the, the rock rope, and rope? The rock and rope is very so, Bionic Commando-like. Yes, that's where he got the idea. So yeah. he, when he was making rock and rope, he wanted to have, he had these other ideas for it, like the Bionic Commando whole aspect where you could kind of swing, um, but the technology just wasn't there. So uh, that wow. all got, that's where that transferred. So rock and rope is like the direct inspiration of Bionic Commando. I love when we have these really beautiful evolution <laughs> lines in history. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it's like, yes, that is that. That <laughs> yeah, is yeah. the evolution of that. <laughs> I actually, when I was like doing a little bit more like poking and prodding to like get on the show, I, I actually found that out just like a couple of days ago because I totally did not see that. I missed that my first with when I was making this video and I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. So, There's a Konami disc system game that's essentially a sequel to that game as well i forget the name of it um but it, it stars a guy who kind of looks like indiana jones and he has that same like oh, yes. diagonal rope climbing thing there's uh, a lot of whips back then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whips and ropes from uh the indiana jones craze so yeah um but after that um he like i said he, he makes Bionic commando uh tiger road which is like a platforming brawler uh and he I, there's no follow-up to ghosts and goblins which is kind of crazy you know the game that's successful it's generally like bam like they, it's a sequel right out the gate but he just wasn't i don't think he thought the hardware was there um he just wasn't ready to make the sequel yet but uh once capcom introduced their uh cp system the cps or cps1 whatever you want to call it um their new arcade board uh which obviously is known best for like street fighter 2 and final fight and whatnot um he was like, now I'm ready to like, you know, I, my vision can be realized with this new uh, arcade board. So uh, they began development on that, I believe, in 1988. Um, and I don't know, like, if this was a mistranslation or whatnot, but at one point he said there is 30 graphic designers working on the, uh, the, the, the sprite work for that game, mm. which is crazy. Wow. But the, yeah, pretty wild. But uh, this new title was called uh, Dai Makaimura, uh, meaning like Great Demon World Village, or uh, just Ghouls and Ghosts, as it was known uh, in the West. And it was yeah. We should take a minute to talk about the incredibly confusing naming <laughs> structure of this series. Um, yes, especially in the West, um, but also I think it's not super clear in Japan either, where they just tack a word onto Makaimura every time. Um, yeah, so it's, it's Ghosts and Goblins. The first one here is Ghosts and Goblins. Correct. The second one is Ghouls and Ghosts. Yep. And then then what? We have Super, 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 super Ghouls and Ghosts. Yep. And uh, then when it gets, you know, we get to the weird 
kind of spinoffs in the PS2 era. It's like they they add the ghost part in. It's Maximo Ghosts to, gl- to Glory. It's ghost all to it's Glory, yeah. Very confusing. That was only um, in the North American version, though. That was it wasn't even in the European. Oh, which, okay. But just the know. North American one. But uh, <laughs> and then there's Ultimate Ghosts and God. They go back yeah. and forth. Like that's like. It's very, very strange, yeah, because it's just like my wife like like keeps telling people they're like he's doing a video on ghouls and or ghosting, and she's like she can never get it right, and because they just like you know they flip flop back and forth because they use ghosts and goblins for the first main line, ghouls and ghosts for the next two main lines, back to ghosts and goblins, and then they stick with ghosts and goblins after that for and, obviously the new one. And what frustrates me the most about this is I don't feel like ghosts, ghouls, or goblins are the most like memorable enemies in the no. game. It's demons. We <laughs> yeah. should be talking about demons. Agreed. Agreed. Not in the eighties in the US. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, they need to be they need to be ghouls. They need to be ghosts. It's true. That's true. It is a very eighties name. Ugh. And I couldn't find any uh I couldn't find any um I guess stories behind how the the western version the western name uh came to be unfortunately i, I looked very hard but probably capcom kathy named it <laughs> good old capcom kathy indeed indeed capcom kathy for those who don't know was uh i believe a fictional character i'm not sure but she was the uh she was the star of several uh print ads in in the american coin op trade uh for capcom's uh u.s division which was uh Kind of strange uh, prior to, to, to home games. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the sequel, uh, uh, what's different about it? What, what, what did he add? Uh, so obviously it's a giant graphical leap. That was uh, That's probably the most notable thing. Uh, there also is a new armor upgrade, uh, the gold armor, which allows Arthur to uh, cast spells. So in other words, each weapon you pick up uh, allows you to cast a different type of spell. Like one will make like a doppelganger of him. One will bring down like lightning, uh, kind of like killing a lot of stuff around him. Uh, but that was like one of the big things. Uh, they also added in uh, vertical shooting. So you could now throw weapons uh, and swing weapons. You now had a melee weapon. They had a sword, but you can now throw and swing weapons uh, both like while jumping vertically and while standing uh, like up and down. So that was uh it made the game a lot more action focused. I feel like it kind of gave it more of like a, a much more quicker, um, quicker gameplay vibe. Uh, and then there was new weapons. Like I said, the sword was added and the discus was added as well. So those were two uh, new weapons. Uh, and honestly, so the originally the original plan for the game was for it to have two different paths. So you're supposed to go through have A and B paths for each stage that you would pick. And once you finish the game uh, and were sent back to the very beginning, then you would go through the stages that you didn't choose. So it would be almost like two different games, which like made the going through the game twice make a lot more sense. And it was great. But the CPS uh, did not have enough memory and the idea was unfortunately scrapped. And some of those levels were repurposed later on. Not to put you on the spot, but do you think it's that the CPS didn't have enough memory or was it perhaps uh, 1988? Because uh, that's the era, right? Is it 88? 88, yep. Yeah. Uh, was it maybe the chip shortage and they just couldn't afford additional chips? I, he said there was no memory. In the interview that I was reading, he said specifically that the, the board could the not The board itself, it. got it. Okay, Yeah, cool. that there was not enough memory. Because the, there was like it was really gorgeous graphics, really intense graphics for even at that point in time, you know, 
Yeah. So it seemed like he was always like with Fujiwara, like the one big thing I've always noticed in all his interviews is he's always never happy with what he, he he always has like ideas that never make it in. Like he always is like trying to push the envelope more and more, especially very early on. And he's always like holding on to those ideas and like anything that's scrapped, he always like, you know, writes it down and kind of like, you know, keeps it like documented so that he can use it in like later projects. So that's why you see so many things from like previous things kind of like moving forward into his later projects, which is uh pretty interesting, honestly. And this one does pretty well in the arcades too, right? Another, yes. another, another very big, big hit, big success. Um, and the, sorry, go ahead, Kelsey. Oh, I was just saying, and it gets, and then it does the port treatment again too, right? We get yes, all the ports yes. to everything, but there's there's some weird ones this time, right? Like you you mentioned the master system one, which I actually had no idea uh, about some of the differences in this one. The, yeah, the master system one is is really, I, I wouldn't say it's a good game, um, and I know some people will probably hate me for that, but I think it he it's very like. When you're playing it, it feels like Arthur is on ice the whole time. It feels like one giant ice level um, in terms of like how the physics and everything like that work. But the cool thing about it is uh, it's I want to say it's a little bit more forgiving. It's still a very tough game, but you have a health bar, uh, which is very different from any of the other games. And you can upgrade each piece of armor individually, um, which gives like, you know, more hit points and, you know, gives you your magic attacks and, and whatnot. So it even gives you your, a magic bar. You can like, you know, upgrade your magic bar, which is like, it's very kind of like action RPG ish a little bit without kind of like, you know, all the hit points and everything. Uh, but very, very different um, and, and definitely like worth checking out if you haven't played it. And if you're a fan of the series, because it's just unlike anything else in the, in the, uh, in, in the entire uh, franchise. And, Honestly, I would love to see that game like remastered or remade or reimagined because it's such a, a cool idea, honestly. So um, after the game ships, uh, Fujiwara's role at Capcom changes a little bit, right? Yes. So uh, it's kind of hard to like figure out exactly when this is. I, I found conflicting years. Um, some were saying 88. Some were saying 89. Um, I know that he was the producer on Mega Man 2 which came out in late 88 in Japan, Rockman 2. Uh, but I don't know if that was him kind of like getting settled into the role before he was like officially over there. I, I also read 1989, but Capcom split from, had, they had an arcade division and they had a uh, home console division. The Famicom, the NES were runaway successes and they, they, they had to like have a bigger focus on that. They really wanted to like have a team specifically focused on making uh NES slash Famicom games, and to a lesser extent, like uh, Mark III games as well. But I guess Sega handled most of that themselves. But the Famicom NES was was absolutely their big focus. Uh, and the president of Capcom was very adamant that Fujiwara move from the arcade uh, division that he was in, or what would be have been the arcade division, uh, and head up this um, this console this console uh, side of Capcom, uh, kind of like overseeing and, and acting as producer and kind of like just kind of making sure everything like worked well and, and also making his own games at the same time. And Fujiwara was so adamant against not doing this. He did not want to go. Uh, he, he also thought that with him leaving the arcade side of things that he'd be working with inferior technology, which he was not happy about. He did but, not want to work. Which is true. I yeah, mean, it is. It is <laughs> absolutely true. Um, so eventually he gets convinced to, uh, to, to move. I don't know if he's convinced or, or just, they just push him, <laughs> but uh, he takes over their, uh, their console uh, division. And I believe the last game he works on is Strider uh, Strider for the arcade. He was not the director, but he was, I believe a designer on Strider. 
Um, and that was his final arcade game, I believe. I think I want to check my notes on that real quick because I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But um, either way, he moves uh, to this this new console division of Capcom and oversees a lot of the Mega Man series as producer. He directs Sweet Home, which we talked about earlier, um, produces a lot of the um, Disney games like DuckTales, Chippendale, Rescue Rangers. Uh, so he's a pretty big deal, you know? I mean, those those are the home hits from Capcom, yeah. I believe. You know, I think, yeah. I think those are the top-selling ones of that era. Absolutely. And I don't know how much of a, a hand he had in it because he was definitely spread very thin. Yeah, uh, if he had if he was doing all this stuff, I, I have a feeling that he was more of a make sure like everything's on track, make sure this game is good, but not necessarily in the uh, in the weeds with everything. working. Well, and and yeah, I was going to ask, do we have any insight into I mean, it, it's not just that he's changing from arcade to home. It almost seems like unless he was doing this before and I don't know, uh, the, the role seems to be changing from planner to to producer. Yes. Well, and direct, he directs as well. Like I said, he directed okay. uh, he directed Sweet Home. Uh, and he, I think, what else did he direct here? Uh, Marisa no Ona. And that's really it that I can find. In, in, uh, which in one is that? Is that, uh, is that that adventure game? Wait, what, which one is it? I'm trying to figure this. Yeah, I, I, oh, is I'm that not... the one based on the film? Yeah, that's, that's what, what I thought. Yeah. That's what yeah. I thought it was. It's oh, so, it's funny. a very interesting game, but it was like it was weird because he directed the two games that I believe were like had close ties to films, right? Because Sweet Home was obviously based on a film as well. Well, that was a film that was localized. It was uh, oh, what was it called? A woman, something. A taxing woman. A taxing woman. Yeah, taxing yeah. Woman. There it is. Yeah, yeah. It was like a semi sequel to the film A Taxing Woman, which uh, that was. Uh, for those of you who watch Crontendo uh, or remember uh, him as a guest, that, that's one of the, the Capcom games that blew my mind. Um, it's a visual through. novel too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Um, and so I think, bizarre. I think they also did around that time, a, a like parody baseball RPG or something. There's some, there's some fun stuff that yeah, we don't yeah. really talk about. But it's just so weird that he did like the two like movie based games yeah. that were not action oriented at all you know yeah especially since he said himself he's so into action stuff yeah right? he's a big action guy so well it might just be the technology right it's like what can i do with this tech that i'm happy with and maybe, sure that's true you know maybe he's not satisfied with with sprite limitations and stuff like that so he just gets away with you know like they they're both games with good like portrait art yes. you know um so I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm projecting, but but I, but I can see it. But well, I I like this explanation, even if okay, it's good. non non canon, because he's because <laughs> he's a, he's originally like an actual artist, right? Like that's what he's originally hired he's designer, at Konami yeah. to do is to do art. So I can see it. We're we're projecting a little bit, but <laughs> I believe he was, like he was a designer. So I imagine he was doing like very art focused stuff. Like it's kind of yeah. like when you when you say the word designer, like I'm never. He just he that's the word he uses. He never really calls himself an artist, but I believe like there was artistic stuff in there as well as like, you know, like designing how everything was like kind of like positioned together and with how to kind of like go like physically. So I'm not really sure. Something like that. <laughs> but it doesn't take long for him to uh, dip back into the series uh, once he's got his hands on a Super Famicom. Yes. Uh, so the development kits, I believe, go out for the Super Famicom in 89, I want to say. It's kind of like I don't have an exact year on this, but 88, 89, um, they start to uh, 
work on that game. And it is in development hell. Uh, they have a tough time with the hardware. They have a tough time getting the general direction of the game. Obviously, Fujiwara is like, you know, a big producer now. So he's kind of all over the place uh, working on different types of games. So the game is just kind of in this weird spot where they just it's just not going anywhere. It's it's really just it's just, it's a mess, honestly. Uh, so they bring in Tatsuya Minami who uh, would later go on to become the CEO of Platinum Games. That's who probably how people know him best. But he was brought in as a uh, as a planner to uh, get the project back on track. And uh, it was apparently a very grueling process. Um, but he does. Obviously, they make it they make it to the end, to the finish line. The game comes out in 1991. Um, but they just he said it was just it was just pure hell the whole time. And even at the very end, when the deadline had passed, they were still like rewriting the master ROM over and over again. They just could not, they could not get the game exactly where they wanted it to be, and it was kind of just like pushed out the door eventually. I think so. Definitely troubled development. Uh, and then one more thing I, I didn't mention about uh, Ghouls and Ghosts, and that is also super, uh, also true in Super Ghouls and Ghosts, uh, is the fact that. Uh, one of the big differences was the second run through the game, uh, the second loop, uh, you actually got a special weapon that you had to use on mm. the second to last boss. Uh, it's called the Psycho Cannon in Ghouls and Ghosts and then the Goddess Bracelet in Super Ghouls and Ghosts. And if you beat him with anything but that uh, that weapon, uh, you're sent back to uh, either the, the start of that stage or in some cases, I believe, a previous stage. Uh, but if you beat the, the boss with the, either one of those weapons on the second loop, then you're allowed to fight the final boss, uh, Lucifer or uh, Samael or Sardius, depending on which version. You're what playing, a so. troll, this guy. Right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yep. Um, Pretty crazy. So that's the last sort of mainline uh, ghouls and ghosts. Sorry, or Ghost and Goblin. I don't know, Makamura, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the last main line of, of these yes. uh, for quite a while. But um, there is sort of a spinoff series that, that that sort of goes in its own direction. Uh, yes, the Gargoyles Quest uh, games, as we know them. Well, Gargoyles Quest slash Demon's Crest, I suppose. Uh, which kind of like... Obviously, we were talking about how the team had a real fondness for the character since he was the very first uh, the first character created in the entire series. Uh, so they wanted to uh, they wanted to make a new game uh, that was like, you know, different from the mainline titles. Uh, but they were very cautious about stepping on the toes of the mainline game. So they decided to put it on the Game Boy instead. And uh, it is a much different type of game, obviously. Uh there is RPG aspects. There's like a whole like overworld map where you can talk to characters. Uh, you can get in random encounters. Uh, you can level up your abilities. You can get new abilities. Um, it's not very arcade. It's much more of a action slash RPG type of game. It's very unique. It's kind of like Zelda 2. It's like probably one of the best comparisons I can make, um, which did that, I believe, two years, two or three years before that in 1987. Uh, but it's a really interesting game. You play as an enemy character, which is kind of crazy and something that wasn't a very regular thing uh, at, at that time or maybe any time. 
Uh, but he can, uh, you play as Firebrand, who uh, only has a name in the West. He is not named Firebrand in Japan. I think a lot of people think that that is a universal name, but it is. it was given to him just for the games that came out in North America. But he has no name in Japan? He's just called Red Armor. So, oh, okay, so is, that, Red to Arima. is that a species then, to be clear? Like, yes. he is a, he is he is a red firebrand armor. the red armor correct okay correct so uh yeah and it's a very very different type of game uh comes out on the game boy to avoid the mainline series uh and and does pretty pretty well it seems like enough to to warrant a sequel and it seems like the reviews from what i read from what i could see in the west were much more favorable to gargoyle's quest uh and in japan the game would be titled uh just simply uh, Reto Arima Maki, Makaimura Gaiden. Mm-hmm. So a uh, very different title too, which obviously is Red Red Armor uh, Demon World Village side story in English. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> were, 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 you, were you considering localizing it like Ghosts and Goblins side story? No, wait. <laughs> so interestingly, the game is not... T- so at the title screen, it says Gargoyle's Quest Ghosts and Goblins at the title yeah. screen, but it's not on the box. So that's like they, they do this all the time and, and with a sequel, too. So and they made them green on the box. <sighs> I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> the Japanese version, the Japanese art is so, so much better. It's so good. So. So there yes. were two games in the sort of like. Very RPG light with with encounters uh, series yes. and then um, uh, Fujiwara. I mean, Seems to kind of go all out for the Super Famicom third game. Yes. Uh, so 1990 was Game Boy first off, and then 92 was the NES Super Famicom, Go Girls Quest 2. And then in 94, uh, they don't do a third game in in the sense of like it's a third, it's a sequel. It's just kind of like more of a reboot of uh, of the idea of, of the Reto Arima. And it's very different it has almost like a uh, a western like comic art it kind of looks like venom like the you know the style they draw venom in from the spider-man series like it kind of reminds me of that kind of artwork uh but it's much different much more like uh realistic and kind of grotesque gruesome kind of art that is not funny anymore no no it's very (laughs) the other games are very cutesy and kind of like you know anime like but this is much much more uh western kind of western art focused uh but it's a lot more um, it, it plays very similar in, in terms of like the, the core mechanics, but uh, there's a lot more kind of like exploration and backtracking, getting new abilities and kind of like, you know, going to different stages and being like, where can I use this uh, to like unlock new, new places to go and like upgrading things. And there's like shops and whatnot that you can uh, you can uh, talk to people with. So it, it has a little bit more of a, uh, a focus on exploration um, than the other games. So Fujiwara is kind of wrapping up its time. Capcom essentially with this game. I mean, he he does a few more things, but yes. Uh... And in the interview, so in the interview I read, actually it's on Schmuppelations. Uh, it's a really cool interview about the game. Um, you can kind of hear him being like, "I want to try new things. I want to like you know do these different ideas and stuff like that, and like kind of like define what an action game is like moving forward for like these new 32-bit systems coming out." Um, and he's not he's producer on this, so I, he's producer on all of these games. He's not technically the director. Um, but, you know, obviously he has a big, a big hand in this. And like, this is like his, the series is his baby, obviously. So, um, but yeah, he's definitely starting to get, it seems, it seems at least like he's starting to get a little frustrated and wanted to like, kind of like have more freedom and branch out more in these, uh, this interview for this game. Then he eventually 
leaves Capcom, right? And like, yeah, yeah. So he does leave. So before that, so in '93, uh, right after Gargoyles Quest Two, and right before Demon's Crest, like I said, he's not directing these, so he's kind of like the producer. He's not too too deeply involved, I don't think. Uh, but that's when he pitches and kind of greenlights uh, Biohazard or Resident Evil, which is the uh, the sweet home, like kind of uh, spiritual successor. Uh, I imagine that was they, they wanted to do something slightly different because they didn't want to have the rights for have to deal with like the sweet home rights or anything like that. Um, so he pitches that game, um, kind of pushes it through, uh, handpicks uh, Shinji Mikami, who was kind of like not wanting to do it um, very much. He was a little like kind of weird about it because obviously horror games were not in a great place at that point in time. They weren't very respected. Um, they generally just didn't do very well. And Mikami didn't think he was a great fit, but he kind of pulls Mikami into this role of director. And obviously he flourishes at Capcom, like, you know, turns into this, you know, huge, huge deal moving forward with the series. Um, but after, I believe it's, I believe it's before Resident Evil comes out in 96. Um, I wasn't quite sure on the dates. The dates are kind of weird, but he leaves either right before it comes out or uh, right after it releases. But it's in like late 95, early 96 that he leaves Capcom. You know, I'm I'm almost tempted to just talk about him instead of the series. He's, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. He's so interesting because it's, it's almost like okay, well, where does Tomba fit into this? You know what I mean? Like, you know, he goes, he's, he founds Whoopi Camp. Uh, they do the Tomba series. Yep. Uh, you know where we sort of left off in our narrative just now is that he wants to redefine action games on 32 bit systems. Uh, Tomba. You know, I haven't played it too much, but I, I feel some ghosts and goblins in that game. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, is is this sort of like like is he I mean let's just go from there, right? Like like is is he is he sort of innovating on on these thirty two bit platforms? Is does it feel like a natural progression of this series or its own thing? I mean, Tombo is like very it has the event system, which is like you're in the stage and you have different like things to do in that stage, which I think was like kind of you can kind of see that in Demon's Crest where he's like wanting to have more exploration, like more of like backtracking to different stages, more of like not just going from left to right boss, like fight enemies, fight boss, beat stage, go to next stage. Like he's trying to like, you know, make it so players can kind of like, you know, interact much more with a level and have a lot of things going on. And I mean, that's honestly anybody's opinion, whether or not he he innovates and, and really succeeds in that. Um, I think the Toma games are really cool and they have a, a huge cult following. Um, but unfortunately, they did not do too well um, sales wise. So... Uh, that kind of leads to Whoopi Camp shutting down after the second game. The first one does all right, but the second game really just kind of flops. And for the second game, sorry, I'm kind of like all over the place with my thoughts right now, so I apologize. No, I'm kind of just jumping around. But um, with the second game, he actually steps out of the directorial role that he was in for the first game and is acting as a producer for that game again. And then it comes out, it gets pretty good reviews, and but fails like financially it does. It flops and uh, what became shuts down. Sad. Sad. Um, so, I mean, with the time we have left, I don't, it's something we struggle with often in the show. It's like, I don't, I don't want to just rehash the rest of your video. So sure. like, right. um, 
you know, I, I, everyone, please go check it out because this is not where the series ends. Uh, there's there's some, some weird Western developed spinoffs that are actually very good. Are you uh, denying for, me the chance to talk about the Wonder Swan? Uh, right now yes, me? I am. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelsey, please quickly. No, no, it's okay. Wonder, okay. Wonder, Kelsey's Wonder Swan Corner. <laughs> Do you have information? A- I, like about oh, like, I just I'm just a big Wonder Swan fan. I just I just learned that today. I saw your post on Twitter, and I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh! Like, because I just had posted to like three days ago. I was like, are there any Wonder Swan collections? Like, has anybody ever done anything? You're like looking that? at I, it on video, I have right? A full now. set over there. Well, so. I meant like I meant collection like ports, like like collections of games oh, for like uh, modern systems or. I don't know if anything ever came out. No, no. I mean, some of them have been ported. Um, quite a few of them have been ported, but oh, okay. not. Um, not as a collection and uh yeah no more of them more of them should be that sure. would be cool uh anyways yeah we yeah, don't, the we don't, we don't actually have to go over the the, the, uh, the big one. thing that happens is there's there's a wonder swan version that's the most important thing that is the most take important away. Take away. Uh, <laughs> sure, it's sure. got it's got a vertical section in it because you yeah. can turn the wonder swan you can swim so there's i mean there's there's a, there's kind of an interesting puzzle game there's a canceled 64 game we don't know very much about fujiwara himself returns and 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 does some of the real sequels after you know you're ruining the video Jeez. um I, I guess i am but uh <laughs> it's so the, much the point is there's this. there's so much more than this go watch the video um but what i want to discuss with the time we have left is just i mean i don't know i'll just ask the question straight like like why this series why did you make this video uh so i i have a weird history with with the series i i played it a lot as a kid i played the nes game tons i i owned it i could never get past the second stage I, i'm not very good at the at the series uh, at least i wasn't as a kid uh i i played the super nes one i i failed miserably at that i don't even know if i beat the first stage um and i kind of came back to it like randomly like a year ago and my my wife and i were just kind of like hanging out and i was like let me pop in super ghouls and ghosts i was just like i kind of wanted to just check it out and just give it a shot and i just like i don't know what happened but it just completely hooked me and i was i i just fell in love with the game and i finally beat it i went through both uh both loops uh finished the end got the true ending all that stuff and I, I started getting really interested in the series. And I went back and I, I finished the NES one. I beat um, Ghouls and Ghosts on the Genesis. And I just like, I, it's just, they're great games. And I always like liked them, but I was never patient enough to actually like see them through. And uh, I just, I guess I wanted to know more about them. And then like, I kind of found that like Fujiwara, who's like somebody who I found incredibly fascinating because I've already bumped into him a few times with like other, other uh, documentaries that I've done. And I just... I thought it was a really cool story. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to learn like how this kind of like progressed and, you know, like kind of how he was like involved with all this thing. Cause his story, like I said, or like you said, um, was almost more fascinating than the actual like series itself uh, because of how many, how many things he was a part of and how big of a part of the video game industry he, he really was. And just, I feel like he's, like I said, he just doesn't get talked about much because he just kind of seems to be just jumping around a lot, you know? Um, but I just, I just thought it was a fascinating series and I've always loved it. I've just never been great at it. And I, I wanted to learn more about it. What about you guys? I mean, are you fans of the series? Are you into it? Um, it uh, from a distance? I, I mean, they're, they're just too hard for me, I think. That's, and that's a really good way to put it. It's yeah. From a distance. <laughs> like I, sure, sure. I appreciate the heck out of them and, and, and I just, 
you know, we're, we're not in that sort of arcade era anymore where, where I care to play that kind of game. But I mean, I don't know, like it's also the kind of game that I can see myself when I'm, uh, I don't know, kind of channel surfing games as I do, you know, like, like with the old systems, just kind of going through the library and being like, what's this like, like I can see myself kind of loading that up and, and, and trying someday I can visualize that for That's myself. What happened but, to me? Um, yeah, exactly. Like I can, I can see that happening and, and, and I can tell that, uh, I would appreciate it if I gave it uh real effort, but, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I, I have never have. Sure. Do, you, do you have much experience with the series, Kelsey? No. Um, yeah, I mean, I've like like you, I've appreciated it from a distance, I guess. But I, um, I mean, along those lines, something I thought was really fascinating throughout this video is just sort of the the constant push and pull throughout the years of them sort of struggling to figure out like what, how punishing of a game is the public willing to accept? Where where is the current uh, kind of pulse on that? Because I mean, as you bring up towards the end of the video, there is a big resurgence right now for difficult games, but not necessarily like that doesn't directly translate to like, okay, old hard arcade games are what we want again. I mean, it's it things like Elden Ring, obviously incredibly, incredibly uh, popular right now. Um, But yeah, I I think it's really interesting as they kind of go back and forth with uh, the way that they do difficulty levels, the sort of like, you know, okay, well, now you can uh, respawn where you died, and now you can, you know, have infinite continues if you play on this mode, and, and just the the various different ways that they kind of play and with co-op. that throughout the years, yeah, yeah and co-op, um, is, is so interesting, and it's reflected really well in the reviews, too, like every more modern one gets these really mixed bag of reviews because some people are like difficult games are a relic of the past. Like, I don't want to just be punished. Um, it's, I don't have the time for that. I'm an adult. Like, you know how many other games there are vying for my attention right now? I'm not sure. a child anymore. Um, and, but on the other hand, if you stray too far from the original, you get a lot of people saying the other thing, like, this is what I play this game for is it's mm-hmm. punishing difficulty and I want to have to learn it and I want to have to, you know, really spend time with it to understand it. And it's, it's just, it's a really interesting, it's interesting to me that it is kind of come back so many times and every single time, like, I don't know how you could make a universally successful game like this, because I think you're sort of alienating someone on either side, no matter what. Sure. I think it's really interesting. It's yeah, it's and the crazy thing is, it's just kind of like before before like the Soul series came. And I it's I feel like these two games are always connected in every conversation I have just because of of, you know, how they kind of like both kind of like brought that that like really difficult kind of thing to like to a mainstream audience. And before like the Soul series, it was like, you know, I remember back in like the 90s, we'd be like, oh, this is the ghosts and goblins of like so and so game genre. You know, it wasn't like this is the souls of this. It was more about that. And I feel like kind of the dark, dark souls kind of took that that kind of uh, that crown over um, when they came out with Demon Souls in 2009, I think. But well, I really want to see if someone actually like has written a review that says something like the ghosts and goblins of blank. I'm sure there is. There has to be. <laughs> there has to be somewhere. Um, but I think that it really is. 
this is kind of like I guess the discussion I kind of had. I had a discussion on Twitter with a guy about um, this in the Soul series. He was he was very upset that I that I said that this inspired the Soul series, and I and I kept trying to tell him not not Miyazaki. I know Miyazaki is not in the Ghosts and Goblins. I'm I'm very well aware of that, but just kind of this game, I think, kind of cultivated an audience for this and kind of like built the foundation in like the '80s and kind of like made these people like you know like accept this like really tiny kind of like die and repeat type of like you know platformer that that really just kept growing and growing and getting better and improving and i i think that it just it, it it kind of paved the way for stuff like you know castlevania which came out the next year ninja gaiden obviously the souls games just by like showing companies that there was an audience for like you know this type of gameplay uh and it, a lot of people you know that were growing up like in the 2000s were you know they missed this, you know, like people like me, like I, I love the, the punishing difficulties. And I, I started to think the games were getting a little too casual for my taste sometimes. And Dark Souls was kind of like that, like, oh, man, like there is a game that will just like throw me into all this and will be very punishing. And I can just, you know, bang my head against the wall until I, I figure it out or, or overcome it and get that that dopamine hit. So I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> I have to wonder if we're all a little like Stockholm syndromed by arcade uh, psychology. <laughs> like, sure. is it actually? I mean, okay. I believe you that you find this fun. Uh, I didn't grow up as much in the arcade scene, so I don't find punishing difficulty to be like a fun thing. But there is, for people of a certain age, it's like, yeah, I want, I want this to suck. And I'm like, are you sure you're not just like nostalgic like is this is the stockholm syndrome a little bit <laughs> i mean i i just love games that are very challenging i think i think that uh as i've gotten older i've been i've become more patient i think as i've gotten older which is weird because i feel like sometimes it's the opposite but i felt like i had less patience as a, as a kid and as i got older i'm like i want to go back to a lot of these games or, or or like you know play punishing games because i'm more patient with them and like with resurrection it's that game is brutal it is mean um but you know, I just I finally I got the true ending, and I was very very happy with it. Not on Legend, on the second one down. Um, yes, you can judge me, judge me. But um, but I, I like that. I, I really enjoy that that feeling of overcoming something incredibly difficult by like learning the patterns and just like you know rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And I know that's not for everybody though. You know, I think there is an audience for that, and I think there is people that you know don't don't care for that, and that's totally okay. But uh, I think Ghosts and Goblins really did kind of cultivate that 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 feeling in the 80s of like kind of wanting that that feeling and like you know desiring that in like later games and i think some a lot of like you know indie games and in, in like resurrection ghost and goblins resurrection are uh are capitalizing on that you know and dark souls i think is, is a big part of that whether or not he's inspired by the series or not you know I want to bring up one more very uh it's going to sound very silly but I really enjoyed it um from a friend of ours Krista Lee who tweeted a poll the other day is ghosts and goblins a shmup oh, Man <laughs> it's so funny that's so funny you say that huh. because I I was talking to to a to a friend of mine um who was like he loved my I did a Gradius history of Gradius video too cuz I'm a huge Gradius fan I even have a I have a Gradius tattoo uh, so I'm, I'm really into the series and I, he was like, what's your next video? And I was like, ghosts and goblins. Cause he's like really into shmups and he's like, Oh, a lot of my buddies that like shmups are really into that. And I think there's a lot of crossover there. I don't consider it a shmup. I would say sun, sun is more of a shmup. That's, that's I was true. actually that's thinking about point. that. Yeah. 
yeah, Sansa yeah. and as a it's, schmuck. You yeah. know, I, I think I think the question is sort of tongue in cheek, but it's it's an interesting one to think about because you know, if you if you think of it in that framing, I think it almost makes a little bit more sense. It's like it's, it's not, not a, schmuck, a schmuck, but like you have to you can't move while you fire, right? Uh, with Ghosts and Goblins, you can jump and fire. I think you can move when you fire. Now you got me. I feel like I should like know this, this. The answer to this, but I'm like now I'm thinking back. I'm like, oh my god, can you? I know you I can, jump, you can and jump and fire. Yeah, you can at least do that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Good lord. Now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is definitely crossover. I don't think it's a shmup. Um, but I think there's crossover there. Um, because like I said, I with this video kind of like taking off a good amount. My Gradius video is the other one that kind of has been like rising. A lot of people have been like, oh, I found you through Ghosts and Goblins, but like I'm a huge Gradius fan too, a huge Shmup fan. So I think there's a, a lot of common ground, but I wouldn't call it a Shmup per se. That makes sense? I think that's the right answer. Makes yeah. sense to me. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But it's fun to think about. It is, it is, it is. It's a Shmup from a distance. Um, well, this is fun. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us in the Video Game History Hour. Uh, we're going to link to all the stuff in the show notes, but for those listening, uh, where can they keep up with you? On uh, the I am on Twitter as Chris B. Crisps. So C-H-R-I-S-B-C-R-I-S-P-S, like a cereal. Uh, on YouTube, uh, as, as, under the same, Chris, uh, the letter B, Crisps. I think there's a space in between there. Uh, and Honestly, that's really it. I'm on Instagram too, under the same thing. If you're, if you do that, I'm, I'm not crazy into using Instagram much. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter, but <laughs> if you want to follow me on there, uh, there's a lot of cat pictures. So, <laughs> cat pictures that we can confirm. Sure. Three cats. Yes, yes. We've seen at least two of them. On and this video. Um, one other video so. I just wanted to shout out real quick. Um, I did the editing, and I will be continuing, I believe, to do the editing on Final Fantasy Union's uh, The History of Square, which is an excellent documentary i highly recommend it um they do great work over there and it's, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to work with them i'm just doing the editing i'm not doing like the script work or anything like that and i believe chris kohler is maybe a part of that too a little bit not not 100 okay. sure but uh i didn't do the editing on the first one but i did the second one and it's but it's a great it's a great series i recommend checking it out and there should be a third one third chapter uh coming coming pretty soon so if you're into that kind of stuff uh check it out great thanks again chris this is awesome thank you Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.